0: So I want to discuss tonight something that's been discussed a lot here at The Rock, and that's knowing him. That's even part of our slogan these days, um, is, oh, that's the wrong, (laughs) that's the wrong slideshow. (laughs) My My wife's a sonographer, and we could learn about fetal hearts and, you know, fetal heart echoes and so on. I'm probably not the best person to talk about it the other slide, slideshow. Um, that, that could have been awkward, considering what other topics Laura <laughs> does scans on. Anyway, um, so Laura's a sonographer. She, she does ultrasound scans. Um, I want to talk about knowing him, and it's something that we've discussed a lot at The Rock, something that we have, you know, been going through for a, a few years now, about two years. And... Um, This is something that we, I mean, I'm not, it's not new to me. This intimacy with God, relationship with God kind of stuff. I've been brought up in a church much similar to this one. And it's, um, so intimacy with God, relationship with God, those were not new topics to me. Um, But when this teaching started coming out, knowing him, and I think it may have been something to do with where I was at spiritually, but also the repetition of it. Again and again and again, we heard about knowing Him, intimacy with God through many different speakers. Something mm, just started to gnaw and irritate me. I started to get a little bit cynical and I started to kind of challenge this knowing Him thing. Even though I would have told you, you know, if I would have explained to you that I was a Christian and I had a relationship with God, hearing it time and time again and hearing sort of the breadth, of what was being discussed about knowing him, hearing how much it was affected, affecting and important to our walk, just started to bug me. I started to think, maybe it's because we didn't get enough love in our childhood. you know. And this is just a bit of a lovey-dovey, kind of hippie Christian, 20th, 21st century response to, oh, we all have a personal relationship with Jesus and he lives in your heart. you know. And it just sounded a little bit false to me and it started to kind of... Yeah. I thought, perhaps, you know, we had developed this teaching separate from the Bible. And I wondered, was it really scriptural? And was it really biblical? I think I'd started to feel more comfortable with a less intimate version of God, a less intimate picture of him. I was able to more contain it, expect from it, prepare for my life from it, And when we started hearing about knowing him, knowing the God of the universe intimately, and being open and flexible to what he wanted to do, all of a sudden things start to become a little bit unpacked, and a little bit loose, and a little bit flexible, and that's sometimes a little bit less comfortable. And that's what I had felt. And so this this message tonight is really about me unpacking how that's changed in me, I've seen, this has been sort of something that I've really worked through, and Laura as well. And through books, teachings, sermons, uh, you know, movies, billboards, songs, this message, these things have been drawn out and revealed to me, and I've started to see this knowing him thing. It's not just that it is biblical. It's not just that it is legit. It's all-encompassing. It is foundational. It is primary it is key, not just, you know, it's not just like it's sort of, you know, seven keys to a good marriage, how to tithe, how to know God and, you know, and how to live generously. It's not just one of the teachings, it underpins all of the teachings. It is significant and it is fundamental to what we do. So with that in mind, let's turn to Matthew 7. This is a scripture that has been talked about a lot um, as well, Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. This is Jesus speaking, so starting at 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So these people are coming up to Jesus and they said, look at what we've done. You know, we've prophesied. We've done miracles. We are goody good Christian Jesus freaks. Let us in, you know. And he says to them, I don't know you. Away from me. And what I see in that is that relationship trumps behaviour. Relationship trumps behaviour. Even the pinnacle of Christian spiritual action, religion, whatever, prophesying, miracles, casting out demons, even that doesn't qualify when it is absent from knowledge of God, when it is absent from knowing Him even the pinnacle. I'm not talking church attendance and tithing 10% before tax. I'm talking the pinnacle of Christian action. And that's still not satisfying or valuable when it is done absent from the knowledge of God. Relationship trumps, beats behaviour. Following on from that, let's look at Isaiah, an Old Testament version of the same message, Isaiah chapter 1. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking to Israel. Um, So starting at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. We're going to carry on in a moment um, with that, but I want to pause there for for a second. This is God talking about sin and a corrupt generation. But what He starts with is He talks about an ox that doesn't know. An ox knows its master. A donkey recognizes its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care, recognize my care for them. He's saying that you know even a donkey gets it. Even an ox gets it. An ox knows who looks after it. A donkey gets that someone cares for it. It knows its master. But Israel doesn't get it. Israel has forgotten who cares for it, who looks after it. Then he goes on and says, you know, he talks about sin. It's all very quite, you know, doom and gloomish. It's talking about corruption and guilt and a brood of evildoers. But how does it frame sin? Let's see see if you can hear it. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. It's very relational. It's not, you know, it's not a case of you broke this law, you broke this law, you broke this law. No, no, no. It's you spurned me. That means to reject with disdain. Ooh. Means to abandon. Forsaken, you've forsaken me. Abandoned, renounced, given up. You have spurned the Holy One of Israel to reject with disdain, scorn or despise. You have turned your back, given the cold shoulder to. Very relational terms here. The sin is in terms of knowledge and relationship, not in terms of you broke that command, you broke that command. It's you have turned away from me. You have given me the cold shoulder. You have spurned me. You have forsaken and forgotten and neglected me. That's the way that he is describing the sin. He is framing it in the term of a relationship. Even an ox knows who looks after it. Even a donkey gets it. But you have forgotten me. You have rejected me. You have abandoned me. And that is is that. That is the sin. And the sin is termed, framed in that way. So keep that in mind as we read this next part, starting at verse 10. Uh, Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's referring to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. It's actually, he's still talking to Israel. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Those rituals and sacrifices that he's talking about there, they are not to false gods. They are not to pagan gods. They are the the sacrifices and the rules and the rituals and the festivals and the feasts and the convocations that God had appointed. God had initiated those. But, as we just discussed, they were done absent from God. They were done without knowledge of God. They were done when Israel had forsaken and forgotten and rejected and spurned God, ignored him. Even an ox gets who looks after it, but Israel doesn't. And yet they continue with the religious action, with the sacrifices and the feasts. And that's what God says he hates. He had initiated all of those things. He's not hating that. He had told them to do it. But when it's done absent from God, when it's done separated from who he is and what he's asked, the hollowness, the falseness of it, That is what God hates. That is what his soul despises. Pretty harsh, pretty intense. But it's similar to what he said in Matthew, what Jesus said in Matthew. The pinnacle of the Christian actions of prophesying and casting out demons, doing miracles, but absent from him, not in knowledge of him, that's what Jesus said, away from me. That's why he said, away from me. Very similar to this one in Isaiah. in this this passage here in Isaiah, he provides a bit of a resolution. Come now. Come. Let us reason together. There's a, there's a drawing back. You know, and he finishes with that, your sins are like scarlet, but they shall be white as wool. You know, they should be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And so his resolution is to come, draw near, come back to me, Israel. Remember who I am. Don't forget me, like, you know, think. an, an ox gets it. An ox knows who looks after it. Remember me, come back to me, he says. Because relationship trumps behavior. Doesn't it? Relationship trumps behavior. They were doing everything he had asked them to do as far as behavior was concerned, as far as the action was concerned, but it was done absent from God. And he said he hated it. Because relationship trumps behavior. Hosea 6 verse 6 in the New Living um, Translation says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Psalm 51 verse 16 and 17 says, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Before God wants the sacrifice and the behaviour and the action, he wants you. He wants your heart. And those sacrifices and those actions are things that draw us into knowledge of him but they were not the point to begin with and done absent from God separated from God they are false and hollow a broken and contrite heart that means a sorry, repentant, humble heart one that is saying I am open, I am willing here I am God not something that is built on false pretenses and appearances and looking good and looking spiritual it is about something that is submitted and open and humble and before God. That is the, the sacrifice that God will not despise. I want to talk about tattoos. Not really talking about the ethics or the morality of them. I don't really bother, That doesn't bother me either way. But tattoos are image. They don't change the person. They might be very meaningful to the person that has them, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that many people who have tattoos think they are very important to them and they give them meaning. Cool. Don't have a problem with that. But the tattoo doesn't change a person's heart. I could get, you know, a big Māori tattoo and you know big Samoan genealogy, one around my leg. I'm not Māori, I'm not Samoan. It doesn't change me or my genealogy. I could get Laura for life, you know, (laughs) right up my arm. That doesn't make me a good husband. It doesn't make me a faithful, loving husband, no matter what the appearance of it says. I could get my kids' date of birth and their names and their faces tattered on me. That does not make me a good father. That doesn't change my heart. They are skin deep. They are appearances. They are image. I could get a big, giant Jesus you know, across my chest. That does not make me submitted to him, and it does not change my heart. Tattoos are very much skin deep. So again, don't be offended if you've got one. If they're meaningful, cool. But they don't change you. They change your appearance. They change your image. They change what you look like on the outside. And God is not fooled. You know, I'm not fooled if I see someone who says, you know, so-and-so for life, but they're in prison for, you know, domestic abuse or something. doesn't matter what their, their tattoo says. That is very much an appearance thing. And that's kind of how I see these these passages in Isaiah and in Matthew 7. God is not fooled by these skin deep these shallow hollow actions and behaviours and religion. He's not fooled guys. We haven't tricked him. He didn't you know He because we know that man looks at the outward appearance but God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. We see the appearances, we see the religion, we see the behaviors, and we are impressed. But God's not impressed if it hasn't affected the heart, if it hasn't gone in deeper. Very good. And again, I'm not saying that the behaviors are the problem. They're not the problem, that they're things that God has instructed us to do often, those sacrifices in Isaiah. But absent from God, separated from God, removed from God, those things are hollow and false. You may as well not do them. Do you see what I'm saying? You hear my heart? I'm not saying we shouldn't go to church, we shouldn't tithe. No, I'm not saying those things. But I'm saying those things void of God or separated from God are shallow, skin deep and, and false. Keeping that in mind, here's another scripture to Matthew 23, 25 to, 30, oh, yeah, 25 to 37. This is Jesus speaking to um, the Pharisees. Matthew 23, starting at 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones and of the dead and everything unclean. Sorry, I skipped a bit there. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And then going down to verse 37, this is Jesus speaking. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. These people, you know, he says, Jesus is saying, you know, you're cleaning the outside of your lives. You're making the appearance of a good, clean life. You're like a whitewashed tomb. You look all pretty. You've got a nice pretty angel statue and some pretty engraving. Some nice, you know, things etched in there. It's all clean and white. It looks immaculate. But inside, you're full of death and hypocrisy. God sees that. People maybe not. People see the outside of the dish and the cup in this sense but God is not fooled. He sees the heart. And he says, clean the inside of the cup. Clean the inside of your life. Submit that to God with a broken and contrite heart, and the outside will become clean too. It's not that the actions are not important. It's not that the actions and behaviors of our life are are irrelevant. It's not. But it's that it begins on the inside and comes out. Because if it starts on the outside and never goes in, it's hollow. It's false, like what we've read in Isaiah, like what we've read in Matthew. God is not fooled by the outward appearance. Let's move on to Mark, chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain, where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, even my mum. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. There's a lot going on in that scripture. Don't let the brevity of that sort of strip it of what it... That's that's a massive thing that's going on there. These three disciples go up with Jesus to a mountain, and then boom, Jesus... It's shining bright like a diamond. And he is. (laughs) Little pop culture reference there. He is shining bright. He's shining like the sun. He is dazzling white. And there's Elijah and Moses. They were dead, by the way. You know, they were obviously. You know. So this was incredible to see. This was super spiritual, super incredible, supernatural. This was. You know. These guys would have been (laughs) like, what is this? This is. This is insane. And they're obviously in shock. There's another passage, I think, in Matthew and it says that they were cowering down or they were, you know, hiding their faces. And Peter kind of blurts out let's build tents! That's what he says in a different version. Let's build tents or shelters. Which might sound really bizarre but had a bit more context back in the day. A tent was like a tabernacle, it was like a a memorial or like a shrine perhaps. And so so Peter was suggesting that they build some sort of shrine or memorial, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. Because his immediate response was, wow, this is a massive deal. This is big. (gasps) Let's contain it. Let's box it in. Let's bottle it. I don't want to forget this. I have to physically contain it. And actually, build a structure in order that I may relive this. And all of a sudden, this cloud appears around them. And the voice, you know, Father God says, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Don't disengage. Don't become absent from me by starting to, you know, get wrapped up in your shelter, in your memorial, in your shrine. Listen to him. He's right there in the flesh. Engage with him. Don't miss, don't miss the point here. You're getting a diluted, shallow you know, version of what I'm trying to offer you. Here's my son right there. Listen to him. Other versions say listen and obey. Hold that, hold that. We're coming back to that. I don't know, um, look, you know, I'm married to Laura, and I don't know exactly what, how we're going to interact tomorrow. I know the character of my heart towards her. I know what I've promised her in my wedding vows. And I know that, you know, I know that I'm not going to smack her over the head with a saucepan. Like, I know, I know my heart towards her. However, I don't know what she's going to wake up and do tomorrow morning. I don't know what's, I don't know what sort of day she's going to have. So what do I do? I listen. And I respond. I engage. I can't just do out of my wedding vows. I need to be involved in this. That's a relationship. I'm engaged with it. So she says something, I think, and I respond. I share what's on my heart. She responds. That's a relationship. It's a back and forth. It's an engaged thing. It's not simply a this is what I will do kind of a Ten Commandments kind of a thing. God has asked us to live in relationship with him. And so I'm going to engage with Laura tomorrow and I'm going to respond out of what happens and what she says to me and what I say to her. And that will be something living and dynamic. Something that, dynamic is a word we chuck around a lot here. It's a process or a system that's characterized by constant change, activity or progress. It's alive, it's growing, it's evolving, it's moving, it's breathing. And that's the kind of relationship that I have with Laura is that I will respond to her. I won't simply just live out of what I promised on my wedding day. I'll actually need to listen to what she says tomorrow. I don't know what she's going to say. Who knows? I'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> we even had this thing in our wedding vows that was almost too cringeworthy. That we were like, oh, I don't know, it's a bit corny. Should we put it in? And we eventually decided that we would. And it was this line. We, we kind of gave each other a bit of a smirk when we said it on the wedding day but it was really important to us because we knew this principle even if we hadn't articulated it like I am now it was something that was really important to us and that was the line I will always find new ways to love you always Um, and the reason that was important to us was that we knew four years ago that we would not be the same people we are then, we wouldn't be the same people today we would have experienced more we would have shared more we would have lived more so therefore, there would be more for me to love of her and her to love of me. So I knew, we knew that we, would need, we were promising to stay engaged in the process of our relationship. We weren't just promising that we would stay stagnant. We promised to be open, to be engaged, and to be re- reflexive, to, to build on what we've learned and what we've, we've found out. And in four years' time, we will be different again, and I will have found new ways to love Laura. And she would have found new ways to love me. Because we will stay engaged and we are committed to staying engaged in our relationship, not simply engaged on the day of our wedding and then sit back because we ticked the box and we, we signed on the, dotted, on the dotted line. The promise was to stay involved and to stay in, in relationship. That was what the promise was. And I feel like in, Ma- in Mark chapter 9, that's what God was saying. Don't box it in, don't make a shrine. Don't make a memorial and then just live in that space. Instead, listen and obey. Engage in relationship. Follow me. You know, Jesus talked about us being like sheep that listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. That's in John 10, 14 um, to 28. talks about that. He says, my sheep know my voice. They follow me because we're supposed to be reflexive and involved, not simply Ten Commandments style, live a good life and then die. He's calling us to more. Imagine, for example, following on from that wedding example, imagine if I, on the wedding day or shortly thereafter, just got a whole lot of the photos of our wedding day and the wedding video, and that was now my relationship. I took what was a beautiful day, and I made that the point. I would miss so much of the relationship. There wouldn't be a relationship. That's, isn't it, that's just stupid, isn't it? I didn't get married for the wedding. I got married for the marriage. I got married for the day-to-day till, I, till I'm dead kind of stuff. That's what I got married for, not for the wedding day, the ceremony, the whatever it was. So in the same way, I feel that you know, in Mark chapter 9, God was saying to the disciples, don't disengage, don't become absent, don't make a memorial, don't box the sin, don't bottle it up, you can't. It's a relationship, it's dynamic, it has to be living and alive, it has to be something that changes, changes and grows. I mean, it says that the Holy Spirit's like wind. You can't. You don't know where the wind is going or where it comes from, you just got to chase it, you just got to follow it. The teaching of the Bride of Christ, it's a bit weird, eh? Let's be honest. It's a bit strange. It's cool, but it can be a bit weird. And I really hope that everyone here can fully engage in that metaphor and fully engage in what a beautiful, potent symbol that is. Let's turn to Hosea. That will help make my point. So this is Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. This is, um, once again, God speaking to Israel. And he refers to Israel as a, as a woman, as an adulterous woman. Starting at 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. That was my little sister, a little joke. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. I will give her back her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor, or the valley of trouble, a door of hope. There she will sing, as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, you will no longer call me my master. (laughs) Whom? That's massive. The image of the bride of Christ is a way of contrasting how Israel was seeing God or how we may see God as master, boss, king and saying I want to move you from that perspective into you seeing me as husband, sweetie, my love, baba. I know you call your wife (laughs) baba, cute. But he's saying, "I want to see that dynamic change. I want to see that perspective change from when you stop calling me my master in a distant, fearful way to when you see me in intimate and friendly and loving in that kind of a way as a husband and a wife. That is a massive paradigm shift in how we see how we see God, so don't let some of you know if you if you take the analogy or the metaphor of the Bride of Christ and you unpack it, you know you try and That doesn't answer everything about our relationship with God. It is a facet. It is one way of us seeing our relationship with God. And let it show you the depth of intimacy that God wants of us. Let it show you the amount that he cares and wants to know us. Not just in an obey me kind of a way, but in a loving, faithful, intimate kind of a way. That is a powerful, powerful image that the God of the universe considers us in that way. That is the way that he is desiring of us. Husband and wife close. It's incredible. I was at my brother's wedding in February and um, I got talking to this um, girl, Hannah, and she wasn't a Christian, but she knew that I was because um, Laura and I were asked to pray for my brother, who, who's not a Christian, um, during the ceremony, which was really special um, for us. And we we sent a good prayer up, um, and people people noticed that we were saying something out of out of our heart, not just kind of you know, oh Lord God, bless Richard and Joanne. You know, it wasn't like that. It was very much very much something from us, and people saw that, and many people sort of said, oh wow, that was really special. And this girl said to me. at at the reception later. She said, um, you know, is it a challenge, you know, being a Christian? Do you sometimes have questions? And I said, heck yeah, you know, I have questions, I don't always get it. But I said it's all right because it's not about me just getting it, it's about me knowing God. And I started to share with her the Bride of Christ, and I said like, you know, oh we're at a wedding, what a fitting kind of picture. And I started to share with her about how God actually desires us like a bride, and it's actually a, it's intentionally a relationship not a watered down kind of abstract follow the law kind of a thing it's deliberately fundamentally a relationship that he is wanting and i was sharing with her the bride of christ as a gospel message and i was like this this makes sense now to share this like this way and i suddenly sort of saw a bigger had a bigger appreciation for that bride of christ teaching when i was sharing with this girl just saying do you know what he wants you so much he wants you to marry you that's his desire for you that's the depth of the relationship he wants to have with you i wasn't trying to convince her to give up smoking and give up drinking and to live a clean pure life and to abide by you know x through z law you know i wasn't trying to convince her of anything i was trying to show her that god loved her to the, to the point where he wanted her as his bride that's the depth of the relationship he desired and man it felt good to share that with her in such a way, better than 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 any way that I've tried to explain the gospel before. And I started to see a little bit more about how I should be sharing the gospel with others. That is the relationship that he wants. I read a book um, called With, and in fact, our entire life group, well, we got them to try, we tried to get them to read it. Um, this, it's a really good book, I think he even gave a copy to mum. It was a book that really started to get this ball rolling um, of me starting to see the relationship with God being fundamental and absolutely necessary. It's called With by a guy called Sky Jathani. And I was going to read an excerpt, but I won't. I'll just um, paraphrase. And it's talking about God's intent, the intent of God. And it starts, he talks about in Genesis, how when God created Adam and Eve, he created them to be with him in the garden and he would walk with them. He would, you know, he asked them to rule and subdue the earth, to cultivate and to spread the beauty of what he had started in the garden and to to rule and reign with him. In Revelation we are told um, this is uh, from Revelation 21 uh, 2 and 3, I saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. From Genesis to Revelation, we see God's desire is to be with us. He walked with us in the garden and in Revelation, he promises that he will rule and reign with us on earth in the the new city of Jerusalem. His motivation, his intent from woe to go has been with has been about us and being in communion. Not about us obeying rules and laws and commands and just following through sacrifices and following through with action. Yes, those things are important. Don't mishear me. But that was not his original intention. His intention, his motivation, from woe to go, has been to be with us. From Genesis to Revelation. When I was thinking about preparing this message um, I wondered uh, if I was worthy enough to bring this message. I didn't feel quite like I was, had the, the CV to bring this message. I felt like I'm talking about not just living Christianity but I'm talking about knowing my God knowing Jesus the person. That's what I'm challenging you to do. And I was thinking, do I know him? Am I in this right space? And I found, and and this this is my response, Philippians 3, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Earlier Paul is talking about how all the things that he may, he could boast about. And in terms of his actions and behaviors and identities as someone who's really righteous. You know, he was a Pharisee, he was born in the tribe of Benjamin, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was, you know, he was zealous. He was all these things that you could say that he could boast about, about how righteous he was. Think about Matthew 7. He was kind of saying what those people were saying. Lord, Lord, look at all these things we've done. He was saying that I could boast about those things more than you could. And then he says this, so this is um, verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss, disadvantage, The title of my message tonight is Don't Settle for Christianity. Don't settle for Christianity. Don't settle for the shrine, for the memorial, for the boxed-in version. Don't settle for the behaviours and the actions alone. We're so good at getting people... Well, we can be so good at getting people in the door getting them to follow our culture. But don't settle for that. I know that I've settled for this. I'm not trying to bring condemnation. I'm just trying to bring encouragement and say, I for so long was settling for the culture of Christianity. And it's empty. It's false. It's just like those people in Isaiah. It's just like what it says in Matthew 7. If we don't know him, it's empty. Even the pinnacle of spiritual Christian Christian action—prophesying, casting out demons, miracles—even that I'm not doing those things, you know. So even to that extent, we can go and still miss the point if we are separate and 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 not in relationship with God. So don't settle for Christianity. I've got to like. Oh. The way that I was writing it was don't settle for Christianity with a little asterisk. And the asterisk was seek God. Obtain God, like it says here, I press on that I may gain Christ. He is the prize, he is the goal, he is the point. That's what you need to be pushing into. Yes, those actions that we do, they come out of us. They they overflow out of us, like it said, you know, Jesus said, You clean the inside of the cup, those actions come out. So don't hear that I'm saying that we shouldn't be doing some of the actions and behaviours that we do. Don't hear that. Instead, realise that what comes first, what underpins it all, what comes first is knowledge of him, knowing Christ. That's what we seek. So I just want to finish with um, this verse from Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. With what shall I come come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God.